0: from UK, but living actually in uh, States, Florida. We welcome Philip. He's a experienced design manager and planner, used to work with uh, large international companies and managing large teams in companies as World Pool, UL, Rubbermaid, and now we just. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's very nice to be here. My first time in the... Uh, in Lisbon and in Portugal so I'm very happy in, to be here so um, the title of my presentation is experience design but seeing as we're all really the products of our own experiences I thought what I would do is share my personal design experiences over my career and having worked for um, large corporations as a designer originally a product designer by training and now as a design manager um, some of the sort of patterns and, and habits and behaviors that I've seen in different companies, some of the lessons that I've learned, some of the successes I've had. I'm not gonna share all the failures I've had because we don't have time for that, it's too many. And, then, and hopefully you'll just get some, um, some tools and um, some techniques out of this. So my design experience, I'll start with a little bit about me, myself and I, just for some, for some context. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Brit I, um, originally. From the UK, but I've uh, had the pleasure of living and working in, in many different countries now. So, originally um, in the UK, then uh, the US and Italy, and uh, now living and working well, Canada for a little bit, and uh, now living and working in Florida. So, I think the one thing about if you're lucky enough to have a sort of international career and move around. A failure is managing your pension because I have no idea where my pension is anymore. My finances. A success is assembling IKEA furniture. I am a master at assembling IKEA furniture. That's a small, small benefit of being able to adjust the number of different environments. But again, I think we're all. We're all outcomes of our, our individual experiences and that nature and nurture piece of it. So I think the experiences that you have and that you continue to learn from that and that forms you into something is really important. So as much as you can work with different uh, individuals and companies and in different environments, you continue to learn. So this, is, this looks like, if you're familiar with NASCAR racing, uh, the race cars that have all the logos over. it. When I put this together the other day, I was like, wow. Now that's sort of my, my career, some of the companies I've had the fortune to work with. And you can see it's sort of it's very branded. Uh, it's it's durable goods. Um, they're uh, long lead time items, particularly. And now I work for an organisation that's really a holding company. Has over 120 different brands within the portfolio. Everything from fishing rods to to uh, coffee machines and everything in between. So so managing a design function for that, the role of design, working with engineers, marketers, suppliers, etc. You know each of these different com- uh, companies and in each of the different um, countries, very similar patterns, unsurprisingly, I would say, and things that I've learned. Um, a little bit about you know, the types of things I've done, everything from conceptual work to um, very tactical uh, line extensions. I mean, I think that's that's part of, when I mean, you work for a large organization, they make something successful, they just want another one of those, they want the predictability. That's not a bad thing, that's, that generates you know, a nice steady flow of cash, but as a designer, you're sometimes that sort of antagonist within the organization, prompting them to go to places they don't always feel comfortable doing. So how you can lay out that story, helping them map and adjust to that future is a, is a large part of it. So, you know, I had the fortune to work with Electrolux in Electrolux and their advanced design studio and developing, you know, concepts, kitchen of the future and things like this. So creating that space and that environment and that story for, for design leadership. You know, another thing when I thought about, you know, myself and my personal experiences was a lot about the things that affected me growing up and the sort of heroes that I have. So, you know, just as uh, Jonathan was saying, when you write down your successes and your failures, I think it's an interesting. I'm not going to ask you to do it, <laughs> but write down who, who your heroes are and who you look up to and who you admire it was sort of an interesting uh, exercise that I went through. Sadly, there's a lot of white male middle-aged men when I did it, but I don't know why <laughs> it just happened that way. But these are people that I think have really, you know, shaped, um, shaped their, their industries. and Norman Foster or Edward Tufte or Terence Conran with the UK <coughs> and you know, Habitat as it was and a businessman that understood good design for the masses and how that evolved. Uh, somebody like Jasper Morrison, who in my book is just a pure aesthetic, you know, genius, that simplicity, something to really appreciate the craft of design as much as the process. And then people like Charles and Ray Eames, who I think it's really hard again when you, when you, you know, not to see their work in so many things that you uh, experience daily. So, an interesting exercise, just to think of who you admire, who you respect, and who has an influence on you um, in your career. So, Charles and Ray Eames, I'm sure you've all seen that uh, movie, which was, what, 1970-something. I think I was nine years old when I, when I first saw this, uh, The Powers of Ten. And that, that, for me, was an absolutely eye-opening moment that just made me realize that design was about creation, but it was this context and being able to see where you are at a point in time. So if you're not familiar with the movie, you know, obviously have a look at it, but this idea that you can dial up or dial down in terms of magnification and understand, and then you start to see patterns and things repeat, and, and nature and man's learning from nature. So it's just a really, you know... Uh, life-changing, life-forming moment for me, which convinced me to get into into design. Um, so when I think about design, um, lots of different terms come to mind, but I think ultimately those that work in design believe and hope that they're doing better, better through design. You know, design is a cause for good. It's about understanding a, a problem or a need. It's about making a better solution. So if that's what your, your primary motivation and incentive is, it's good to always come back and remember that. So design is art and a science for sure. I think we sit between those left and right brain individuals trying to join it up. Uh, certainly like sort of chaos and order, there needs to be a time for creativity and unknown and being comfortable in that unknown space. And then there's a time to sort of make a, have a design brief, have reviews, get to an execution and manage that process. And it's so important to know where you are in that process, again, to that context of understanding where you are. The verb and a noun, I I love, I love, you know, design and design as it's evolved in the last sort of, I don't know how many years, you know, it's become experience design, UX design, uh, all these different terms around design, and then innovation, what does innovation mean, and all the rest of it, so it gets quite, quite complicated, and that's okay again, because I think the process of learning about design and developing design is in itself a creating act. So, I find this sort of intelligent naivety. Um, it's a simple term, someone showed me that, and I really, I really like it, because I think it's, it's, it's curious, you don't, it's educated guess. You don't know, you can't tell, you have to prototype, you have to test, you have to learn by your mistakes, and you probably get your biggest learnings through your biggest mistakes. So that to me is, is what design is. And if you had, to, you had to draw it, everyone's seen that chart. You know, The scribble at the front, the chaos, the the unknown, a lot of people feeling very uncomfortable, very unsure, probably want to fire you, probably wonder why they hired you, um, don't want to give you any money, um, want to have the answer tomorrow. And you've got to you know, just have the faith and have the confidence to position it right within the process, show them the tools and techniques to get through that. And then work it through to a final design. This is um, uh, some classifications by Bruce and Stephanie Tharp out of the Stamp um, School in Michigan, and I, I saw this a uh, few months ago, and, and it really sort of as another sort of eye-opening, resonating point. But they classify design in these four areas: so commercial, being designed for profit, designed to make money. Responsible, which was designed for for those in need, social good. Experimental, which was designed playing with new materials and new technologies. That, anyone know what that is? So that is a lamp, just a lamp, light, but it's made from pouring cement into rabbit burrows. So where rabbits live in the ground (laughs) to make the hollows. So I just, you know, It's experimental, it's a new material, it's a new way of forming materials. So don't make a mold, use a natural mold, pour cement into the mold, see where the rabbits used to live and light them up. No rabbits were harmed. I don't know, maybe they were. And then discursive design, which was um, sort of design that creates conversation and question, you see in their work, they talk about discursive design, it's about creating the conversation, it's not so much about the object, it's about the dialogue. So You see a lot of it in film and print, but this is a a expensive piece of luxury jewelry, but rather than having the diamond on the outside to show off the diamond, the diamond's on the inside, and only you know that. So it sort of makes you think about what it is and and, and its role. So I really like those four different areas of of design. And back to that sort of context and knowing where you are in design, if you work for a, a large, Fortune 500 company, you have to understand that they're about commercial design. They're about making money. There's no point working in that organization if you want to you know, push, discursive, or purely experimental. You have to understand your audience and context. Um, as designers and creators, you might need to have other avenues to go and experiment and play on those things, but you have to know in uh, which of those fields you're acting. So finally, just a little bit about um, my personal experiences and some of the, the lessons I've learned. And I hope, I hope that in, in some of this is sort of repeatable and usable to you in your experiences. So a nice quote by Robert Sutton is, out of uh, chaos comes creativity, and out of order comes profit, which I think, again, lines back up with the design process very naturally. I think we see a lot of this in, uh, in nature. You know, nature's great um, especially if you're a visual person and you and you and you see it and it and it looks chaotic and then when you break it down again you see you see patterns you see repetition you see order you see logic you see beauty you see all these wonderful um, senses again so you know seeing seeing patterns is key visually i think again you know information and data and how you uh, Interpret that data. I spend a lot of my time in meetings looking at Excel charts, and it means absolutely I, n- I just make my blood color and absolutely nothing to me But I have to try and I don't think it means that much to people presenting it to me sometimes when I really say But well, what does it mean? There's this blank face. It's like I don't know. Just look at the bottom right hand corner It's like I, I want you to understand I want you to understand the data to understand the patterns to understand what's causing it to happen in a certain way so this this uh, poster in the bottom right-hand corner. If you're not familiar with that one, I'm sure many of you are. That's um, something that Edward Tufte uses a lot in his yes. presentations, and it's uh, if they're not familiar, show a hand. Most people know that one, so not not everybody. So it shows Napoleon's march uh, into Moscow and his defeat and his retreat, and the back, the width of the line is the number of soldiers that he had as he marched into Moscow. The, the, the line at the bottom is the temperature, and then obviously it's laid onto a map, and basically it shows the death of 300,000 people, is what that post, is what that, what that shows. Um, so it's a pretty uh, ominous image, but it's, it's, it's one of the very earliest uh, examples of an infographic and, and portraying large amounts of information in a very concise and uh, refined way, which again is just for me a very, a very important part of, of design and, and communicating a lot of information in a succinct and simple way. And he has the phrase, the map is the metaphor, which I think a lot of the time as designers you're not just designing the the object, you're designing the process, the map, for how to get the team from a, an unknown to an object and then you're also designing the experience, maybe at retail or maybe during use or maybe disposal, you're designing that entire experience and how you communicate that physically and and virtually are so important. So another one is sort of out of um, chaos comes creativity, out of order comes profit. Another chart that I'm sure you've, you've seen, and you know, again, I've not always referenced this, but when I've, when I've seen it, I see it repeat over and over and over again is by um, Bruce Tuckman, And this sort of relies a lot on design, relates a lot to design management. So again, forming, storming, norming, and performing. Um, are the sort of phases that go through, and maybe the internet of things is going through these phases now. Maybe the Stone Age <laughs> went through it as well. But you see it's just a natural life cycle in a way. Um, so again, really an interesting piece of work that, that I find relates a lot and helps. So things like the, Comtec- uh, the powers of 10 or the, the, the Bruce Tuckman work. Um, this was something, it's a bit of an eye chart, I apologize but this was something we developed a new rubbermaid with an agency called Park out of the Netherlands. They are uh, an agency that don't do design services, they do design management, so they help teams frame up their their objectives, And, and for me, it was so great to work with a company like that because they put the strategy into a visual format and created a map. So on this single map, we were able to basically articulate our entire strategy from a design standpoint, So you have the the, the why, can you articulate your vision statement, your mission statement, Um, and your uh, your overall purpose. You have the what in terms of the types of work that you'll be doing, everything from tactical line extensions all the way up to strategic uh, innovative work. you have the understanding the different people that we work with as the organization went through a restructure, marketing, design, engineering, the different skill sets that we needed to have inside the design group. Traditionally it being just industrial designers but bringing in color finished material, bringing in UX people, bringing in rapid prototyping, bringing in visualization, understanding those different skills, looking at the global footprint, You know, where did we need to have people located, not only our full-time employees but also our consultants. So mapping all of that out, And then the process, understanding that most companies have a new product development process, but we went through a process of cleaning that up, the major forums that related to that process, and then just really creating this toolbox of all the different tools that we had, whether they were uh, management tools or software tools, uh, communication tools, and this this was a, quite a lengthy exercise, but at the end of it, it really helped everybody to sort of step back and say, okay, that's if I'm having a conversation with you about what we do, is it a is it a what conversation, is it a why conversation, is it about a tool, is it about replacing something? So that was really taking the map as the metaphor and putting that into our design strategy. So that forming piece, that very first piece around do you know your purpose? Establishing baseline extension, uh, expectations. Are we a commercial organisation or are we an experimental organisation? Understanding the why you exist, I think, is extremely important. i worked in lots of organisations where they've said, "We want to be design leaders," <laughs> and then you're like, "Okay, well, can we can we hire some designers?" No, no, you know, we just want to be design leaders. Can we? Can, okay, can we have a couple? Yeah, a couple. Can we have a design studio space? No. So you know, you're all for that process of what you want and then setting those baseline expectations. So the why is critical. Um, and if you take it right back, I think that, that for me, this again was something that sort of, at the, at the base of it, uh, as human beings, we're, we're tool builders. We, we want to make tools to improve the quality of our other life, be it an axe or be it an iPhone, whatever it is. And a lovely um, Steve Jobs quote where he said you know, way back when, when he read at American Scientific, article about what was the most efficient Creature on earth and it was the condor bird in terms of amount of energy required to fly and amount of distance It could travel the condor bird was the most efficient animal I think the horse was somewhere the cheetah was somewhere and man was like number 10 mankind was number 10 But a man on a bicycle Became number one, which was like it's just a game again you know, that's why that's why we do design. That's why we make things. That's why we create cities and technologies is to is to make us efficient, to make us better, uh, hopefully without doing too much damage in the process. But we're, at our heart, we are tool makers. I think the other thing about purpose is that we are we're principled. Um, and again, I had on my hero slide earlier on Dieter Rams with his you know, principles of design and having those benchmarks to go back against and saying, but is less more, or is, is this aesthetic, or is it useful, or is it desirable, and having those principles are so, are so key that we don't just run around creating things and, and not have something to go back and hold ourselves accountable to. And, and just on last one on, on uh, purpose, you know, I think as designers we're very fortunate and very um, Responsible positions we have to think truly about the bottom line. I mean we work for organizations that really the primary motive is Profit and as designers and you're looking to the future. It's like yes, you have profit But we also have a a, a broader extension around you know people and, and, and planet as well so you know lofty goals and we're not exclusive in that club, but we have a big responsibility to, to shape that and not to provide solutions that don't address these types of issues. If we give people solutions and we haven't thought about this, we're, we're guilty of giving them the gun to shoot us with. Um, the next stage so is sort of forming and then that storming, so establishing the teams and the roles and the relationships, that who, that that human capital piece of it. So I think um, with this one, very much, again, you know, you know, stage better than anybody probably, but if um, you played there, I think that's the scholar in, uh, in in Milan. But um, so that notion of perception, knowing, knowing if knowing the different <laughs> players in it—the actors, the directors, the producers, the audience, the the story, the the critics, etc.—knowing. Just, just, having the, the context to step back and understand who the different players are in the organization is something that I see a lot of design designers will sort of not always be in tune with those other aspects. What's the motivations of a, of a manufacturer or of the retailer? I mean a lot of the times we're not designing for the consumer, we're designing for the retailer, but how do we convince them that we know the consumer better than they know the consumer so that we can get the better product out there and not be just in a retail battle between a couple of different uh, channels. And the other the other nice piece of work, I referenced it in the new May, uh Design Maturity Staircase, There's some work done by Design Management Europe where they created this Design Maturity Staircase where you've got the various levels again, and just knowing where your company sits with on this. So again, if you don't know this work, I encourage you to go and have a look at it. But level one, is really you know no design management, you know product as service. It's bought in by the yard, etc. Oh, not even that. Um, the next level is they have you know random design projects, but no real overarching strategy, no philosophy on design. It's just we did a design project, we may or may not do another one. <laughs> it depends. It's it's very pragmatic. Um, the next level up is um, design as function. So maybe then you are investing in a internal design manager or a design team to help orchestrate and police your design activities. And at the highest level, design is culture. So most people would think of an Apple or a BMW a company where Apple uh, where design is deeply rooted in the organization. Although I think a lot of the studies recently have said that it's actually a very, very small companies a startup companies where design is actually much more at the core of the culture because it's two or three people that really believe in the organization and they're the ones that live and breed the culture and can control it. And again, this sort of curve that you go through as you get bigger and as you become more successful, it gets harder and harder to keep that raw purpose alive and that, um, that culture. So the other thing around sort of people and relationships is understanding that I think design is a team, is absolutely a team sport. And you all know that the Stanford D School sort of IDEO people, well, the, the, the viable, feasible, and technical in terms of marrying up that, that three-legged stool and ensuring you achieve those different things. Those pictures in the back are actually uh, the design studio we were able to build the new Rubbermaid, uh, which was great because we had a, a lot of investment by the company and by the, the state of Michigan to actually go and build a, a purpose-built design center and, and staff it, and a lot of you know ability to bring the different functions and the different disciplines together. So. So once you understand the purpose and you know why you exist, and you have the right people and the right relationships and the right resources, I think then you get into the you know that sort of norming and that process and establishing you know, standard ways of working. So what so that you can repeat it, and you can become predictable, and you can generate a steady uh, steady flow of income. So for this one, you know, I think again, if you look over history, how things have sort of Started to standardize how ideas were. Ideas come from anywhere, and they're conceived in in coffee shops in the 13th century, or they come. You know, now we have TV shows. I'm not sure you have it here in Portugal, but Dragons Den or Shark Tank, where you get entrepreneurs come in and they pitch their ideas. So there's, you know, ideas coming from everywhere, and how you tell that story. So, um, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, um, crowdsourcing, all of that stuff about where ideas come from. It's it's shifted so much from. We're gonna go out there, we're gonna spend some money, we're gonna do some research, we're gonna have ten ideas, we're going to narrow it down to five. You know, it's now much, much more dynamic open innovation. The constructing piece of it, so once you've you know you conceived it how you construct it, uh, so for manufacturing, this is a piece of work if you haven't seen it by an RCA student, Thomas Thwaite. He um, he said about trying to actually sort of hand the craft a modern appliance so he tried to make a toaster from scratch so he tried to get the go to a copper mine and you know mine the copper or mine the iron or or make a wooden mold or get resin from trees and rubber and biochemicals he tried to make the furnace and then to um, to mold the toaster and basically realized that if you wanted to make a toaster and make it by hand it was you know something like and $20,000 or something for one poster and it basically worked once and then broke. But um, it's sort of a fascinating, again, that we've been able to, standard ways of working to do mass production, to be able to, to commercialize ideas and produce ideas so effectively that that, that craft element to it is, is just evolved and, and changed so much. But you know now I think with things like 3D printing, and stuff like that is there a transfer back to I can I can imagine I can create and I can make these things. I have the technology, I have the skills, I have the materials to actually do um, pieces of you know one or two in individual crafting. The fact that there are you know, 3D printing of houses in China, or that they can 3D send a 3D file to the space station and print a tool to do a job—it's just it's just insane that what well not insane, incredible. So that is, that is possible from a construction standpoint, that you would never foresee that being possible. And then, you know, so you've, you've, you've conceived it, you've commercialized it, and then all the changes that are happening and those standardizing around how we consume things. We were so used to going into a, a store and having somebody serve us, you know, the first uh, stores, if you like, and then we were so used to having going into a store and serving ourselves and now we're used to going into a store and our phone tells a beacon on a shelf who's in the store and it goes and finds a product for us. So it's just, you know, and this, this, this image here of a, of a store lined with digital imagery or the subway station, you know, they're ordering their products on their way home and just that consumption and that ease of consumption and, and, and constantly the state of um, absorbing information and being pushed uh, information to buy what does that do to our consumption habits? Things like the Amazon drone and having things delivered to you or now what is it delivered to your car where they can refrigerate it for you until you're ready for it. This app, I think it's called uh, Acorn, whereas whereas you're shopping any if you spend three dollars fifty cents, it rounds it up. That extra fifty cents is automatically put into an investment account for you and it decides where to invest it. So you're sort of consuming, but it's even managing your money while you're consuming. Or, you know, a lot of the things in my industry now that we're looking at is, you know, if we don't have the uh, the egg, the 14 eggs that are fresh, but we've probably had someone think about doing that. But the uh, ideas like Blue Apron, where you're now ordering food or, you know, meals, and you're getting the food prepared, pre-cut, pre-measured, and delivered to, to cook. So what that's doing in terms of our consuming habits. You know, so again, as you go through this curve, You understand your reason, your why, you form the team, the habits, you implement the standard ways of working, the practices, you understand how to bring efficiency to the different levels. You finally get down into that sort of the so what moment where you're in that um, how do you demonstrate results, how do you perform um, the what. And this is an area that I think for design, it's difficult because it's back in that sort of left brain, right brain, art and science thing, how you measure a design success, and a lot of times in organizations, again, particularly commercial organizations, they want to know if you want that design studio and we're gonna give you three design heads, how much money are we gonna get back and when are we gonna get it? What's that return on investment? So metrics um, is, a, is a big topic, but from, from, uh, for the purposes of the day, I just I'd sort of break it down into the sort of good, bad, and ugly, you know, we, talk, we don't always talk a lot about you know, the good design, you tend to talk about the bad design because it frustrates you. I mean, I still can't believe we make these blister packs that nobody can get. We make scissors that come in blister packs. You want the scissor to open it, but you can't get the scissor. And you just wonder how things like that, how do they even, who even let that go out the door? How did that happen? What, what did that? So the bad design sort of surrounds you and infuriates you and gets, you know, attention. And maybe that promotes good design and that, you know, disappears and that's, that's okay. And then the ugly side of design, the waste, the pollution, the damage that we do, and how perhaps again with the Internet of Things and big data that we're able to educate the consumption and the ownership and the behaviors and where this product came from and how it's being disposed of, that information will become much more evident. And it won't just be, I had a bottle of water, I drank it, and I don't really care what happens to it after that. So, um, you know, Richard Buchanan talks about these orders of design, and I think when you, when you think about design in the br- biggest context, yes, again, yes, it is product, and yes, it is communication, and yes, it is service. When you get into the, you know, the, uh, the systems design, or the uh, inter- interface design, again, I think Apple stands out there as one of those organizations that, that, that it has an ecosystem for design. It's putting it across all of its different touch points. I think a lot of organizations look to emulate that so that experience across every touch point is is, is designed. It's done for a reason. It's thought out. Nothing is done by a mistake, you hope. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, I think, in, encouraging uh, for us as professionals when we see the number one organization in the world is, is, is a company that probably is known for having a design-led ecosystem and puts value in that. And then, again, a little bit of an eye chart here, but uh, at New Rubbermaid, we made a big point of, as you went through these different activities, whether it was defining purpose or getting investment or, or developing products, of actually producing dashboards and producing scorecards that we could show to different audiences, like the management audience, around, so how many sales had we achieved or how many um, you know, the employee engagement or training programs or design awards, having those measures and being able to establish a yardstick and then and then repeating that and showing progress over time. I think that's that's very important for, for design organizations is that you you build up your equity and you and you can build on a common platform and it's not too much flip flopping with the with the changes that can happen. So sort of in summary, I, I have this one image, again, that I saw a little while ago, and and for me, it was just such a beautiful image because it sort of shows the past with the the drilling down for the oil, but in the same frame, slightly off in the distance and then holier than whole white uh, white, is the future and and wind turbine, and it's, it's there. So it's a little bit of, I think with design, it's about seeing what everybody else is seeing, but seeing it in a different way and being able to articulate what it could be and, and, and visualizing that and that power of ten and, and the context so, you know again, it's about, it's about having the imagination to question and to um, challenge those orthodoxies that are out there, but it's also then about having the knowledge and the understanding of the factors that are at play and the motivations of others to create the argument to help transform and drive change. So. It's about context and it's about knowledge and imagination. Thank you very much.